newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week of news media events, and we are pleased once again, ladies and gentlemen, to be in the studio. This is still such a time for celebration because we're back mm. after the difficulties of the past year. I'm Rex Smith here with Dr. Alan Shartok, with Ira Fussfeld, and with Rosemary Armeo. We are your media projectors, thanks to our producer, oh. Dave Gustina, for getting us here. Not projectiles? Well, we'll see <laughs> <laughs> what is going to happen. We are all people who have had a number of years of experience in this news media business. <laughs> That's why we're here. And so we're going to talk about some of these issues. Dr. Shartok, I'm going to ask you to step in first here because this issue is one that surely is near and dear to your heart. I'm looking here at a sort of a summary of research done by a couple of UPenn professors, Victor Picard and Tim Neff, and they are saying that what we need in this country is to strengthen our democracy by funding public media. Now, let me just give you a couple of statistics to let this kick <laughs> off. The fact is that public media funding, which in this country now goes only to radio and TV, we spend $1.40 per capita. At the UK, it's $100 per capita. And so they're advocating a public media safety net, more public funding. What do you think about that idea? Well, first of all, I think that when you look at the way you've asked the question and then answered it yourself, you have been espousing for quite a while now, Rex, the idea that, you know, newspapers and others ought to get some of these funds for themselves. And I'm all for it, all for it, as long as, as you know what I'm going to say here, as long as it works out that, you know, the publisher of the Times Union or the New York Times, you know, uh, makes it a public corporation and isn't the boss, the profit-making boss anymore. That's what I have to say. That's what I've always said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. So more more money from taxpayers as long as it is in, in the hands of not-for-profits. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rosemary, what do you think here? I think more money going into media is a great idea. It means less money going into the military and acts of destruction. It would strengthen local news. Huge measures would have to be taken, guarantees that there would be no strings attached. The money comes in and government has nothing more to say about it, how it's spent, what stories are investigated, who's protected. And having said that, believing it deeply, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to see it. Hmm. Well, I couldn't agree more. I've long been an advocate of staying away from this kind of government assistance, but it was easier to say 10, 15, 20 mm -hmm. years ago when we had money flying in the building without anybody else's help. And I'm very much afraid of what government might try to uh, intrude upon if it gave money. The caveat is we need the money. And I don't know whether we're going to have to swallow hard and take it and hope that government won't interfere in the manner that you suggest. But I don't hold out much hope that that would last very long. So look at this. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is the newspaper industry employment has been cut by 50 percent over the last two decades. Just during the coronavirus period, 70 local newsrooms across America, uh, most of them weekly newspapers, local, hyper-local newspapers have been closed. So what these professors, uh, Picard and Neff from the University of Pennsylvania, advocate is they say this, quote, public funding ultimately establishes media as a public good. So, you know, maybe it's infrastructure. 
You know what surprises me are those statistics that you read. Is that I think it was eighteen hundred newspapers have closed, seventeen hundred of them are weeklies. I would have thought that the weeklies would have had a, a better Stronger. chance to survive. Yeah. They do more hyper local. They have less of an overhead because they only have to print once a week and deliver once a week. And a lot of time the delivery is simply the trunk of the owner's car where he delivers it himself. So the fact that the weeklies haven't been able to make it in such large numbers surprises and alarms me because, you know, daily newspapers, we're seeing one trend is less likelihood so far of them closing, but more likelihood that they're going to reduce their publication cycle. So they're going to become weeklies. But the weeklies are vulnerable to the downturn of Main Street. I think that that's what you're seeing here. You know, I used to be the editor of this little paper in Indiana, a six-day daily called the Rensselaer Republican. And, this, you know, the same family. Yeah, funny, it's Rensselaer. Rensselaer, oh, same yeah. family, actually, as the Van Rensselaers here. One of their offspring went out that way after the panic of 1837. Uh, so I, I could tell you the whole you story. You older than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I was just on the phone yesterday, as it turns out, with the mayor of Rensselaer, Indiana, and the Rensselaer Republican is now a weekly. When I was the editor of the paper, there actually were two grocery stores in town that both Support. bought full-page ads in our little Rensselaer Republican. Now, there's none. You know, the nearest supermarket is far away. There was a women's clothing store. There were restaurants downtown. Not anymore. So that, no I think, ads. is where you've lost yeah. the, the ads. Yeah. Well, you know, if Congress, if the president tomorrow were to say, this is a brilliant study out of the university here, and we're going to implement this, it still wouldn't happen. Come on. Mitch McConnell won't even look at an investigation into what happened on January 6th. He does not want an established, much less a government-funded establishment, dedicated to government accountability. It just will not happen. And I don't think that's just for four years. I mean, funding for public radio and public TV has been every time there's a Republican in office, it gets threatened again. So all of this, isn't this more pie in the sky? Well, it hasn't increased, but it hasn't been hurt because public media is still popular, right, Ellen? It's not as though your funding has dropped. Yeah, no, we get a fair amount, but it's still minuscule compared to what we get from our listeners. I think, even though I would be severely criticized by my colleagues in the public radio business and television business, say we would make it easily without that money. And you can say, well, then why don't you do it? Why don't you give it back? Well, we're not giving it back because... The more money we get, the more we can do in terms of hiring reporters and others. But you know, Rosemary, one of the things you said is fascinating. If you get it, if they give it to you, if a politician gives it to you, and I know politicians pretty well, that gives you something that they can take away. You know, And they mm-hmm. like that kind of control. Except increasingly in my field in investigative reporting, money for resources, for reporters yeah. and legal help and all of that are coming from either governments or foundations, and that includes the U.S. government. Mm. Now, they've been really successful in saying, we'll take your money and we're going to do investigations, but there are investigations. You have nothing to say about them. In fact, at one point, USAID funded a group I worked with, and they said, you can't look at American donors in in Bosnia where we were working. And one of the stories we worked on led to a malfeasance by donors, and we wrote it anyway, and nothing happened. So I think that there are ways around that because there's such a public call for investigations. But I just don't see any politician in America right now who would be willing to set up the structure to make that something doable. I I just... I can't see it. Alan just said something that struck a chord with me, which is we already know what happens when government has some money invested in newspapers, and that's in the placement of legal advertisements. And they always threaten. And they threaten, and the vote as to what the official newspaper is is often based on ideology. 
Many years ago, I proposed a law that said the designated legal newspaper should, by law, be the newspaper with the largest circulation in a particular market. But we see that already hovering over our heads with legal notices. Yeah, Ira, why don't you explain, because I'm sure there are people who are listening who have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to the legals. What are they, and why are they so important? Well, legal notices are by law notices that governments, school districts, etc., have to publish in a publication informing the citizens of some action they're going to do towards a tax business or introduction of a law, things of that sort. And each municipality designates which newspaper slash papers is going to get those legal notices and the revenue that comes with it. They're, they're buying something. They're buying space. These are in the classified advertising section. And so it's important for the newspapers. Again, when we were flying high, the money was not quite as important as it is now, but it is important revenue for us. And the politicians are always threatening to take it away. And in more recent times, I hate to say it, but they have a better case because now they can publish it themselves online. I don't know where that stands legally, but they can do it, I believe. So. Uh, and they took money away, Ira, from... Rex's newspaper before Rex was even there. From ours and others. Yeah. Decades they, 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 ago, they, they, the uh, Albany County Democratic machine uh, ticked off at the Times Union because of Times Union reporting, withdrew right. the legal ads from the Times Union and put them into the diocesan newspaper. And the Jewish right. world. So, uh, so you, you know, there's a message there. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was not that subtle. It it did you ever subtle. get them back? Yeah. Yeah. It came back. And now, to answer your question, where does this stand? In terms of state, the New York News Publishers Association maintains a website for the state so that there is actually a digital presence for all these zeal advertising if people want to see that. And it is also then available in print as well for the people who are still using that medium. And it's, you know, not many people perhaps pay any attention to these legal notices, but it does put things on record. And actually, they're more useful in archive form when you're going back to see, wait a minute, what happened? And also, if you have to file, if you have to publicly notify every time you create an LLC, a limited liability corporation or something, that is a tax, uh, not a tax dodge, but it's a way people manage their taxable uh, <laughs> income. It's a dodge. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you have to put that in documented form, it's useful information for the public to have. Well, energetic newspaper reporters would scan those lists every day and find yes. news, news stories in there. They do, actually. That's right. It's a good trick that a good investigative reporter stays on top of. Just one thing I wanted to check with you, Rosemary. Did you say that the government funds, in other words, investigative reporting overseas, but not domestically? Yeah, the United States is one of the, it is the, I think now, largest government donator. They call it media development. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it funds investigative and active news coverage around the world. But not here at home. Anyway, just the statistic that I was searching for earlier that I couldn't when I said two one thousandth of one percent of GDP is what we spend. If we in the United States matched what the BBC gets, which is 0.17% of GDP, that would translate to about $35 billion for public media spending in the United States. So maybe Ooh, you're right, Russ, right? Maybe that, that would be great. Yeah, it does sound like it's a little bit pie in the well, sky. Well, when, when Trump returns to office in August, he'll straighten <laughs> this all out. <laughs> Sarcasm alert. <laughs>
Okay. But, 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 you know, I, I do want to say that, you know, these programs have a certain element to them in which you retired newspaper people are always trying to figure out how the government should support newspapers. And inevitably, you mention the fact that public radio and television get some money. I just want to point out that it gets rather boring after a while to hear you guys, you know, sort of begging for this. Well, tough. I don't, I don't, get over it. I don't believe I was begging. I was reluctantly accepting, but I wasn't. Begging. I like I like Rosemary's answer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, we don't want it from the government. We want it from the public that we serve, and we want it in a distribution method that comes through the government, so that we don't have to do fund drives like you have. Newspapers are not equipped, or many radio stations, to do the sort of massive fund driving, at which you are very successful, Alan, and we wish you well and congratulate you on it. But newspapers cannot do that. Why not? How would it work? You say, okay, you. You love your local newspaper. If I was giving them advice, nobody's asked me for it, of course. You say you love your local newspaper. You know that newspapers are having hard times. If you want to keep getting the news the way you've been getting it in depth in our newspaper, you should send us $100. Newspapers do do that, and they have about as much success as public radio stations who don't have Alan Shartok here. Oh, well, you I have appreciate been, that. It's true, Alan. <laughs> you, you are not common among the public radio stations in this country. There are not other stations who raise as much money as you do. And that is a glory to you. It's praise to you, but it's not a solution for everybody else. And what platform would newspapers do this? Yeah. Like you have the advantage of the microphone and the relentless, and I don't mean this negatively, the relentless message. Sure you do. No, no. I, well, <laughs> uh, okay, I do. <laughs> it's relentless, but it's but, successful. The newspapers under their current print, you know, put it out one newspaper a day with a box on the front saying, give us money. Well, but there is yeah. that. I mean, it's called the circulation. I mean, people do vote what they want from the newspaper, and that is they subscribe. Uh, it is not the loss of readership that is imperiling newspapers. It is the loss of advertising revenue. Right. So it's not that people don't want to read what's in the press. There, It is a shift to digital. Digital content primarily comes from newspapers, ladies and gentlemen, even though it's repurposed and delivered to you on other platforms. There you go that, again. Well, that's true. And there is no local coverage that matches what local newspapers do. The death of these 70 local newsrooms across America is taking away content that is not, I'm sorry, provided in places like DeSmet, South Dakota, and Glendale, California, and uh, Rushville, Indiana, these places. I'm just looking at this list of newspapers that have died. That content that those local papers provided, again, primarily weeklies, is not being taken care of by their public broadcasters nearby because that intensely, highly hyper-local stuff is only being done by newspapers, and it isn't provided to people if those newspapers die. So I'm sorry, Alan, there isn't an equivalent. And so I know there's some crocodile well, tears here about the death uh, of newspapers, but, you know, uh, well, that's just that there isn't anything uh, to replace them. That's a sad all thing. I, all I know is that the Shartoks, who are huge fans of print newspapers, pay an awful lot of money. I think it's $350 a year for our newspaper subscription. Now, I don't know that you can get all of that. We have a paper that I now write for called The Edge, The Berkshire Edge. It's free. People say, I read you in the edge all the time, and I ask them about other papers, and they say, well, you know, it's too expensive. So part of it is that I think newspapers may be pricing themselves out in a oh way. Goodness. Well... Reporting is expensive. You're not going to pay reporters? Uh, no, you also ask how much the publisher gets out of every dollar. Okay. But still, how many, how much, okay. what is the payroll of the Berkshire Edge? How many reporters I, are on staff there? How much? Uh, I don't know that there is a payroll. Ah, 
Ah, that's okay. the way. Well, that that's would the way be great. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> no, 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 there's, 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 there is a payroll, but it's much fewer. Try that at WAMC and stuff. see how much content you get here. Huh? Well, <laughs> you know? there, you, there you go again. <laughs> Our listeners know a good thing when they got it. Well, absolutely, and that's why they contribute, and God bless them. Don't forget the next fun drive, folks. That's a good thing. You keep the media project coming to you and keep our fat paychecks coming on this yeah, project. Really. <laughs> People contribute and like the media project, so what do you know? Uh, how it about should, that? It should be an hour. It, <laughs> if you're just joining us, you can actually contribute your thoughts to the media project by writing to media at wamc.org, media at wamc.org, and our producer, Dave Gustina, will look at what you say and share that with us, uh, we presume, and we'll then get around to it. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Rosemary Mayo, and Rex Smith, we are here with you this week. You know, I know Alan often doesn't like to talk about sports news. There's some word, you call it a distraction, there's a term you use, I can't, anyway. The opiate, the opiate of the proletariat. The opiate of the proletariat, there you go. But there's big news because Naomi Osaka, who is the highest paid female athlete in history, Naomi Osaka stunned the tennis world by withdrawing from the French Open, one of the four majors for the four Grand Slam tournaments in tennis, because she didn't want to go to a press conference, uh, and they are fined $15,000 every time they skip a press availability. So since, Ira, since you were a sports writer and a sports editor before you became a publisher, are we asking too much of our athletes by well, saying you've got to show up? Let's establish one thing. Once Asaka brought in the fact that she has mental health problems, it, for the time being, sets aside the press issue. But let's presume, for the sake of this discussion, that she simply said, I don't want to do press anymore. I don't need it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I'll tell you who is more bothered than the press about that, and that is the organizers of the tournaments. They want the free publicity. They want to personalize and magnify the stars of their tournaments. They want the exposure. The amount of free, what, what do they call it during a campaign, earned media that they get mm -hmm. is enormous. The press conferences themselves are usually terrible waste of times. The questions are softballs. The answers are canned. I could write a press conference script it myself without <laughs> having, you know. Baseball been very good to me. And it's not just tennis. We see them more now because of Zoom, but all these baseball managers having these Zoom press conferences, the questions are nonsense. Now, they have always been nonsense in that setting because the reporters didn't want to ask a nuanced question or a question that might produce an answer that was going to give them the story that they were going after. So to go back to your initial point, mental health issues aside, she is not letting down the press by not going to see the press. She is letting down the sport which is generating the money that she's making and making her the highest paid female athlete. But that's important, especially for women athletes, to raise money yes. to help the sport, to yes. go on media in order to bring in attention, which brings in big pots of money, right. which raises women's sports to the level of men, which yep. we have not yet done in tennis or in any other area. And she is a superstar. She's a millennial standout who has the power to do that. And so there is an element of great, I think, selfishness in this. I've spoken about this, been accused of being anti-millennial, anti-jock, and anti-Asian American, none of which is true. I think that the whole thing was handled badly by her and her team. And if she can raise money herself by making a deal with a Japanese broadcaster, that didn't make her depressed and anxious. She can do commercials that bring her millions of dollars. That didn't make her depressed or anxious. She can go on social media with a rapper boyfriend. She can be in tournaments and play at the highest level of pressure and play against Serena Williams, for heaven's sakes, and that doesn't make her depressed. But doing a news conference, which, as you say, is filled with really stupid softball, and that makes her depressed. The whole thing is just, it's suspicious to me. 
and I am not in her favor. I mean, I think that, I'm sorry to say this, she may be depressed, and if so, then she's paying the consequence now. That's the right thing. But this all could have been handled differently and fairly and helped both tennis and the player. Well, there are those of us who disagree with you on the basis of the depression itself. Depression doesn't get scheduled. You don't know when you're coming in whether you're going to be depressed. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you're hit with depression. She clearly says she has it. And therefore, I think, you know, you have to understand that there are tens of thousands of people who have been to therapists. When we recently discussed this on the air, Rosemary taking the position she is, we heard from psychiatrists, psychologists, everybody who ever had a therapist. And believe me, there were a lot of letters because people were saying, you just have to give her the break of saying she knew when she was going to be mentally stressed. Well, I agree with that. As I said at the outset, if she has a mental health issue, she's got to take care of them. But that obviates, in my view, the whole discussion about should she go to press conferences. When she steps back and hopefully clears herself and she's ready to get back in the game, literally and figuratively, being at these press conferences is part of the job. There's something about every job in the world that an employee doesn't like, like, and this is one of them. Right. I mean, all this talk since she made her announcement about how we have to go easy on her and give her a break and all this— I mean, come on, she makes five and a half million dollars in it last yeah, year. Yeah, take my chances. There's, yeah, I mean, there's certain responsibilities that come with that. And saying, by the way, her first bout of depression, she says, was when she beat Serena. That was several years ago. So in the intervening years, she couldn't have had one conversation with the officialdom saying, this is causing me stress and problem. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. I apologize. But there's something really suspicious about the whole way this has been handled. Well, we, of course, disagree. I mean, I think depression is something that hits an awful lot of Americans, an awful lot of shrinks are dealing with it. And I think you got to believe her when she says that this is what she has. All right, on to the next topic. That was very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to everything else we've said. (laughs) Well, here's another. I mean, we're we're dealing with thoughtful topics here. One of the most thoughtful guys I've encountered in journalism, a guy named Roy Peter Clark, now aged somewhat, but he's been the senior faculty member for many years at the Pointer Institute, which trains journalists, mid-career journalists down in Florida. somewhat? (laughs) He got got old. Rex, he got really old. I'm trying to be gentle here in light of the current company. Old in the, the year and a half since we've been in the studio is me. So go ahead. And I am, and I, I am very suspicious of people with all those names. <laughs> three names, three first names. Roy Peter Clark. He's written an interesting essay decrying the fact that journalists tend to refer to people who leave the calling of journalism to go into public relations or something else because the term that is often applied is they have gone to the dark side. Uh, you know, they're yeah. now going to work for government or they're going to work as the public affairs as a flack that's the word flack and he says journalists who change professions are met with judgment and half jokes about joining the dark side how sad how narrow how counterproductive do we feel sad no Come on. Even the people who do it, the people who make the change, acknowledge that it's for better hours, lots more money, lots more money, more job security. And he himself in his essay talks about how if you work for a newspaper or a public radio station or any of the other forms of media, your audience, your loyalty belongs to the people, your audience. 
If you work for as a public relations officer for General Electric, that's not your audience. Your audience is General Electric, and you are. He says, oh, we don't actually sit around and have conferences on how to block the truth and, and lead journalists astray. But that is what they do every single day. And anybody, the three of us here among them, who have worked in newspapers and dealt with public relations people know they do that. So, yeah, they are going to the dark side. It's part of the job description. You're hired to promote or describe our point of view to the public. You know, if you're a flack for an automobile company and you said, you know, we've got the greatest car going, on the other hand, it sometimes peters out after you've driven a thousand miles. You're not going to see that in a, you're not going to see that in a press release. Oh, no, that's truth telling and that is not what. You know, I don't denigrate those who have made that decision for the good of their families right. or for any other purpose. Absolutely. You know, people have jobs for many reasons and you do as you were just saying about Naomi Osaka, there are responsibilities that are connected to your work. And so if your responsibility is to step forward and put a nice spin on what your vehicle does instead of dying in the street, then that is just the sad responsibility of your job, but you say that is part of what's required of me if I'm Mm -hmm. going to draw this paycheck. You know, when I was the editor of the newspaper in this community in Albany, I always said that there are three responsibilities that a news editor had to the staff that she or he leads, responsibility to the community that she or he serves, and responsibility to the enterprise that owns that newsroom. You don't forget that third one. You know, you do have a responsibility to your publisher to behave in a certain way to actually execute the delivery of the news in a way that will sell the newspapers, I guess. But your fundamental responsibility is to the community. And I don't know that that is the point of view of somebody who's working for IBM, Disney, AAA. Or the White House. The models of the top flack in the country under the Trump administration hardly were a testimony to the great noble work of public relations people. We had somebody in uh, in my market in the Ulster County area who shall go nameless. He's no longer alive. But he was a PR guy. And he would come in with his press releases and he'd hand me the press releases you probably won't want to use this but here (laughs) i'm not sure his employers would have been happy with that actually i worked with a a reporter when i was a young reporter at newsday who had been a a flack for american cyanamid uh, which manufactured explosives and there's this great story about the day that he got a phone call from a reporter in pennsylvania who said mr wacker his name is bob wacker (laughs) mr wacker i have a I need to get your comment on this because a truck carrying uh, American Sandimate explosives that was owned by American Sandimate has gone off the road and exploded in Pennsylvania. And it unfortunately ran into a reptile display. Oh, my God. Snakes raining from the sky after the oh, what a great truck exploded. Story. I know. The tires were bald. Things were stored improperly in the truck carton. And he said, I wonder if you might give me a comment on behalf of American Sandimate. And Wacker, by his account, said, just a moment. Let me put you on hold. I'll see what I can do. He put the guy on hold, got up and put on his hat and coat and walked out of the office and went back to newspapering. So there you go. That's a great story. I did not believe it was true until 20 years later, I bought a home in Rensselaer County, New York, and I found an old newspaper that had the story of the explosion of the American Sandman truck on the front page. It's true. The truck did explode. It was the same day that Lyndon Johnson proposed uh, peace talks in Vietnam, which is why it is that they had kept the old newspaper. So the story of Bob Wacker seems to be true. So there you go, folks. The wow. true story of a flack in action. There wow. you go. I'm sorry I took up all that time, but it was a lot. Oh of fun. no, that was worth it. <laughs> Alan, did I put you to sleep? Sorry. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. With that, we have to close the program. No. It's only going to be an hour. Well, then I really could have told you the whole Wacker story. Anyway, that's all. Alan Shartok is here, Rosemary Armeo, and Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to David Gustina, our producer, and to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>